Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with John Woods Jr. John is the National Ambassador for Braver Angels, and he's also a podcast host. And he's a really good follow on Twitter, and all you should check him out and also Braver Angels. Out. Hi, John. Thank you for coming on. Hey, Obey. It's good to be on with you, brother. Thanks for having me. Uh, no, please. Yeah, it's uh, my pleasure. Now, I mentioned Braver Angels. Now, I've been following them for a little bit. I've been following you for a while and you know, looking at the debates that you have and stuff. So if you wouldn't mind getting into like how that all came about and like what the whole philosophy behind Braver Angels is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, so let me give you give a little bit of an overview of Braver Angels, the organization and Braver Angels, the community, if you will, because it is, it is very much both of those things and perhaps more the latter even than the former. But Braver Angels is America's largest grassroots uh, organization dedicated to the work of political depolarization. Although I tend to like to deepen that explanation by saying that what we are really committed to is reviving the communal spirit of, Amer of American democracy, if you will. And uh, we are active across four sectors of American life and increasingly five. We uh, have work that we do with <clears throat> politicians and elected officials from federal government all the way down to uh, local state government. Um, so politics and, and, and government, uh, we are active um, in, the, uh, in the academy. Uh, we have presence um, college campuses across America, very popular campus-based uh, debates program. Um, we are active in media narrative, things that we do with, of course, media figures, but we also have our own fledgling digital media network. I'm a co-host of the Braver Angels podcast. We're also releasing the John Jr. show uh, coming up, but we have a, a team of writers and, um, and, uh, and a number of fantastic um, personalities uh, as commentators. Uh, my colleagues, Monica Guzman, Kieran O'Connor, April Lawson, Silas Kulkarni, Luke Phillips, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we even have a singer-songwriter community, uh, artists and musicians who use music as a part of our programming, as a ways of, as a means of bringing Americans together into, uh, into relationship, into interaction across divides. But we are chiefly focused in the grassroots, local communities. Uh, we are a membership organization, about 10,000 uh, dues-paying, actively dues-paying members at present with uh, about uh, getting close to 80 or so uh, local bipartisan alliances. Uh, they, you can think of those as local Braver Angels chapters um, dotting, the, dotting the landscape across the country. Now, the foundation of our work, where our work begins is with direct sort of workshops, interventions um, meant to cultivate attitudes, skills, and relationships that give the American people tools to be able to engage in the work of, of reviving this democratic spirit uh, from a sense of empathy, from a sense of commitment to the common good in a way that allows us to communicate and collaborate across the aisle. And so to get specific about it, um, where our where Braver Angel's story begins is in the aftermath of the 2016 election. And um, I, uh, I was not there from the very beginning, but the president of the organization or the person who would become president of the organization, David Blankenhorn, my boss, uh, and uh, who was formerly the president of the Institute for American Values uh, think tank that was uh, focused on family issues, fatherhood, um, 
Uh, Bill Doherty was a professor of psychology from the University of Minnesota and one of America's foremost family therapists. Uh, and uh, my colleague, David Lapp, uh, who's a wonderful writer and scholar out of Ohio, um, they looked at the country in the aftermath of the election and asked themselves the question, uh, could it be that the American people can no longer find common ground on issues that matter? Or is it possible that if we got a small group of folks together from each side of the aisle in the right context, maybe they could rediscover some trust for each other? It seemed like a, like an experiment worth running. David was in New York. Everybody was in mourning because Trump had, because Hillary had lost. David, uh, David Blankenhorn, that is. David Lapp was in Ohio. Uh, most folks were happy because Trump had won. But in, in the town of South Lebanon, Ohio, uh, things were evenly split, 50-50. And so it seemed like a good place to bring folks together from both sides to have a conversation. Uh, Bill Doherty was brought in to build out, the, to build out uh, an experience for these folks. And so in a barn in South Lebanon, uh, and I think it was probably early December uh, following the election, uh, we gathered about, you know, again, prior to my time, but we gathered about 11 or 12 or so folks from each side of the divide to, to engage each other, not in argument or debate over the election, but in guided conversations through specified exercises in terms uh, that, that would allow each side to articulate why they saw the election the way they did, why they saw politics the way that they did, and to relate their human experiences, their lived experiences, if you will, as a means of providing a window um, into the, the worldview and the understanding um, of their own persons for the benefits of people on the other side. And it was a powerful sort of relationship building enterprise that turned out some unlikely friendships at the end of it, including one particular pair that became sort of an early uh, symbol for the larger work of, of, of then better angels at the time. So uh, I'll get to the names and the and name of the, the naming of the organization in a second, but the, um, there were a couple of individuals. One, one was a man named Greg Smith. Uh, Greg, who's a construction worker, a former small town sheriff, evangelical Christian and Trump uh, voter from, uh, um, from, from the community locally. Um, and uh, he had an interesting engagement at the, um, at the workshop with a fellow named Kuyar Mustafi, who's, a, uh, who's a, an immigrant from Iran, a liberal Muslim, and somebody who was a leader in the local Democratic Party. And um, at some point in the workshop, uh, Greg uh, addressed Kuyar and told him that uh, he, had a mis he had a problem with Islam. Uh, and if you know Greg, Greg tends to be pretty blunt in the way he <laughs> he says things. You know, he tends not to beat around the bush. And he's and he said something along the lines of, "I can I can tell you my problem with Islam in four letters: I S I." And before he could finish spelling ISIS, Kuyar uh, sort of interrupted him and he said, "He said, my friend, he said, I know what you're going to say. He said, but my religion has been hijacked." And then he asked him, he said, you know, can you think of people in your faith, you know, who may have hijacked your religion, who, who, who claim it stands for things that, that aren't what you believe? And Greg, you know, thought about it and realized that he didn't have any problem thinking of Christians who had perverted the gospel into something that didn't at all represent 
you know, who he was as a person and, and, and what he felt that the faith was really about. And so that became the basis of initial connection by the end of this first workshop, which was a three-day affair. This was an entire weekend. Um, Greg and Kuyar uh, stood up at the end of the gathering as we were, they were going around a circle to sort of elicit from folks you know, their thoughts on next steps for sort of continuing this sort of relationship building across divides. And, and the workshop was tremendously impactful for everybody involved. Everybody agreed that the work needed to continue, that more people needed to have this experience, that it should be spread far and wide. Um, but Greg and Kuyar made a special commitment to each other and to the group. Um, Kuyar uh, pledged to pay a visit to a church service, um, a service at Greg's church specifically. And Greg committed to, uh, to attend a worship service at Kuyar's mosque and that they would get to know one another and they would get to know one another's religious families and, and find a way to bridge the gap between their own parts of the community. And so their relationship wound up being something of part of kind of a founding sort of mythology to, if you will, the larger kind of Braver Angels community. But after that initial workshop, um, David, David, Bill, and David, uh, and uh, a few others hit the road. They chartered a bus. People heard about the success of that initial workshop. I think NPR picked up the story. Um, word of mouth started to spread. <clears throat> and suddenly they became sort of like first responders, responding to polarization in local community, traveling you know, up and down, I think it was the, probably the Eastern seaboard and some of the Southern states. I actually forget the exact route. I don't know that, but but largely back east and in the south, if I'm under, if I recall correctly, they were called into places where people were having difficulty, you know, interacting with each other in local school districts and families over the dinner table. You know, people would call and reach out and say, "Polarization is tearing my community apart. It's impacting my family. Can you guys come and help?" And so, in that initial bus tour, and this was, I think, spring or summer of 2017, um, that is where the initial kind of generation of what became called Better Angels um, membership first cropped up. Uh, people participated in these workshops and were then trained to facilitate them after the bus pulled away and continued on down the road. And so uh, a grassroots uh, movement of healing and reconciliation was was born and the organization that came from that was initially called Better Angels, uh, as in the Abraham Lincoln quote uh, from his, uh, I believe it must have been his, his um, uh, second inaugural address, if I'm remembering correctly, the Better Angels of Our Nature in any, in any event. Um, and um, I don't want to botched the quote. I should know it by heart at this point, but it makes reference to the fact that the, you know, that the, the chorus of the union uh, will again swell um, when touched as surely it will be by the better angels of our nature. Words to that effect. Um, funny thing about that is that, as I recall, Secretary of State uh, Seward, who was Abraham Lincoln's right-hand man, wrote that speech. Uh, originally, it had something to do with the, the reference to angel had to do with the guardian angel of the nation, sort of a deity sort of figure on high, kind of, you know, blessing the American people to rediscover connection with each other. It was Abraham Lincoln himself who tweaked that to read the better angels of our nature, 
to sort of refer more to an internal transformation as opposed to beseeching, sort of a, a godly intervention, if you will, um, in, in American affairs. And, you know, that seemed to speak, I think, pretty well to the character of what was developing because the idea, the, you, you asked, you know, what's the philosophy behind, behind what's now called braver angels? Um, but, you know, the idea is that by sparking a transformation um, in the heart of the American people, that we can begin to infuse the culture of our broader democratic society collectively and structurally with that transformed spirit, with that spirit of goodwill, something that allows for us to actively listen to each other, to actively engage one another from the vantage point um, of, a deeper, of a deeper empathy, what I've what I refer to sometimes as uh, patriotic empathy, this idea that our love of our country is demonstrated by the concern that we bear um, for our fellow Americans. And so um, Better Angels um, became something of a grassroots phenomena. I joined the organization officially as a member of staff in uh, March of 2018. Um, I had been a nominee for Congress. I'm somebody who worked for the Republican Party as the vice chairman of the LA County Party, as a matter of fact. And um, I, um, somebody who prior to that had worked for Barack Obama's campaign in 2008. I came from a family that was Democrat and Republican, black and white, you know, rich is Southern and, and, and urban, you know, rich, and not so rich, <laughs> you know, depending on which side of the family you were pointing to. Um, for me, and I think for a lot of people who found their way to Better Angels and, and then Braver Angels, uh, so much of the animating kind of perspective for the value of this work comes from the philosophy that guided the nonviolent movement, Martin Luther King Jr.'s movement, of course, in the, in the late 60s. In fact, one of the um, one prominent voice in Braver Angels is a man named Harry Boyd, who was a field um, uh, secretary for Dr. King. His father was uh, the only white man in the uh, executive board of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And Harry himself, at the age of 13, was in an adjoining room uh, as Dr. King rehearsed his lines for the I Have a Dream speech uh, in you know, 1963. Uh, Harry was there and can remember him um, going over his, his lines. And um, the thing about nonviolence, the thing about Dr. King's philosophy is that it rests on this premise, which says that love is a spiritual value that can be applied to social questions. And I think that Braver Angels operates with the same sort of perspective, which says that if we can reintroduce the motivation of, of what King would have phrased agape love, which you could think of as goodwill, if we can reintroduce goodwill as a starting motivation for American civic interaction, we can begin to reframe our differences in a way that allow us to disagree and disagree vigorously, allow us to pursue the truth as we see it as activists, to speak truth to power as we see fit, but to do so in a way that signals our fundamentally positive intentions, even for our political opponents, so that we can remain in relationship with each other and not destroy society in the process of disagreeing with each other because we throw out our commitment uh, to one another's uh, to one another's larger sort of common interest, if you will. Um, that's what happens when you lose respect, when you lose goodwill, when hatred and contempt and fear take the place of that. It's no longer just about winning the argument, it's about destroying the other side. 
that's what Braver Angels seeks to address and to reframe. So it's probably more than you needed as an answer to the question, but I'm happy. To <laughs> no, it was, it was great. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was going to actually ask you about the, the, the name because, you know, I'd heard about Better Angels pretty much right after the 2016 election. And then, you know, I guess, you know, a year or so later, I'd heard Braver Angel. I didn't know that it actually had gone from one to the other. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, know? right. Yeah, so there's a backstory there. Well, <laughs> it's not too complicated, though. There, well, there are two things. Um, one had a little bit to do with a bit of a trademark dispute that we had, <laughs> you know, over the name um, Better Angels. Uh, there's a, another, you know, fairly well-resourced organization with a similar name that, um, you know, um, they didn't have exactly the same name. They weren't doing quite the same work that we were doing, but they felt like there was a conflict of interest and it was resolved amicably, but, you know, left us in a position of having to adjust. Um, now the name Braver Angels occurred to us. Um, I actually originally had the, had the uh, idea, um, but, you know, it, it, it was a couple of things. One, just on a pragmatic level, we knew that, you know, having to change the name after having already established the work of Better Angels fairly well. I mean, we'd been covered pretty thoroughly by the national media. You know, we had members across the country, you know, relationships across across various parts of society. Um, you know, losing brand uh, visibility is a tough thing to deal with for an organization. And so Braver Angels was similar enough to Better Angels to where we thought that, you know, hopefully that would maintain some familiarity, right? And make the transition less difficult. And so, you know, I mean, like yourself, some people still were confused, of course, and there are a few people who still are, but, but overall, I think that worked well. Um, but the deeper philosophy behind the name change was that, you know, there's this traditional emphasis on empathy in the bridge building space. This idea that we need to be able to recognize one another's common humanity and sort of place ourselves in each other's experiences as a means of understanding one another and thereby relating to one another. And, and that's all very true. Um, but, you know, in the context of American politics, one takes a real risk in, in putting his or herself forward, him or herself forward uh, in, that, in that way. Um, on the one hand, you risk the possibility that, you know, the person opposite you uh, in a political interaction is going to distrust you or maybe even despise you and regardless of your good intentions, you know, treat you in a poor way on the basis of the fact they just regard you as their political enemy. And so if you try to engage with them in a, human, in a humanizing sort of way, you potentially open yourself up for their scorn or contempt, at least initially. But then there's also the, the perhaps even more disturbing reality that one will also potentially at least open him or herself up to that sort of treatment, even from one's own friends, even from one's own political comrades and you know, compatriots, um, on the basis of the fact that empathizing with the opposition can seem to suggest that one is selling out to them or that one is demonstrating weakness in a winner-take-all, live-or-die culture war. And so it takes courage to be able to stand in empathy in that way. It takes bravery to be willing to stand in the gap with enough resolve to, you know, sort of 
hold the space for the American people to begin to actually see each other through a clearer sort of moral lens, if you will, and for us to be able to turn the passions down enough to be able to engage with each other and relate with each other in a way that begins to restore the relational fabric and heal some of the wounds. And so it made sense from our vantage point to really start to lean into bravery as kind of a key virtue uh, in this movement to sort of to sort of unite the American people on the basis of our recognizing each other's common humanity and common human dignity. Without courage, without bravery, uh, a person you know, doesn't, doesn't really have the power to endure, you know, potentially that, that hostility or to otherwise sort of sustain the emotional kind of effort that can sometimes be required if somebody wants to go deep into that. You know, so that, that's the story behind the name change. Yeah, no, no, thanks. Now, I'm kind of curious about this because you mentioned politics. Already. Now, in Canada, I guess uh, last few elections in Canada, I've been trying to get my friends to say, you know what, because we shifted, in, like we're a parliamentary system, so we don't vote for, like you go vote for the president, right? So there, And then you vote down ticket. We don't vote for our prime minister. We vote for a local MP and the party with the most MPs forms a government and the leader right. of that party becomes a prime minister. So the way it should work in Canada is you vote for your local MP in your writing and you vote for the person you think will best represent your writing. Now, if it so happens that the person you vote for and gets elected, but they're not part of the leading party, they're still in parliament. They still give you a voice. So I was trying to get my friends to do that. Say like, you know what? Focus on your local MP, focus on who's going to support your writing the best, but it's still, it's, it's, like we've changed too much and I don't think that's going to work, but so I'm just kind of curious about like your approach to that. Would you want to get people to focus more on like municipal elections, like local elections? Because I mean, if you look mm -hmm. at voting stats, even up in, you know, even here, it's the presidential or the prime ministerial elections will get a lot of voter, voter turnout, but you know, mm -hmm. municipal election, you might get a couple of thousand people if you're lucky. Sure. So right. are you, trying to get people to focus more on that and because i mean in my mind it would be an easier way to find common ground if you're okay we're, we want to better our town we want to better our city we want to better you know if you're mm -hmm. new york we want to better our borough or something like that like so it's a smaller yeah. number of people smaller area like i'm just curious about that yeah, I, we're, we are definitely focused on local engagement. I mean, as, as I mentioned, you know, we're very much a grassroots organization. We have local, local alliances across the country. We don't really focus on voter turnout per se, but I, I, do, I, I do agree with you that, you know, there, there's, there's a way in which, um, there's a way in which local politics provides a more hospitable context to our for our sort of uh, sort of reestablishing a recognition of our shared interests in a way that transcends the the party divides. And actually, I just I'm in Los Angeles, I'm in California. I just got back from a conference in uh, Sacramento, where I was speaking to uh, a room full of mayors and city council folks. You know, just basically reminding people of the fact that you know, as, as frontline you know local elected officials who oftentimes have the you know, I would say probably the good fortune of running in nonpartisan races, even if they are registered Democrat or Republican or what have you, 
um, you know, local elected officials are sort of best positioned to be able to model the sort of leadership that doesn't define itself on carrying water for some big national kind of like, you know, polarized partisan narrative. And so too do local constituents have the opportunity to do something similar in the way they engage folks uh, in the local community, both their neighbors and their elected officials. Why? Because we're closer to the problems, closer to the tangible solutions and closer to each other. So even if we have different party affiliation, and even if we're you know, different you know, races or religions or what have you, we are near enough to our shared interest to where that can help recontextualize the essential sort of reality of our relationships to each other. And so part of why it's important for Braver Angels to not just act as sort of a national megaphone for depolarization, although you know, we do that and seek to do that. And, and, and the reason why it's important for us to not just focus on Congress, although we're you know, fortunate, fortunate to be beginning to sort of, sort of penetrate um, the halls of Congress somewhat with our programming, but the grassroots matters, local community matters in particular, uh, because it is the foundational layer of self-governance in American society, whereby our fundamental relationships to each other can be said to be sort of, sort of um, uh, most uh, proximately uh, formed. And so, yes, again, not so much in the area of voter turnout specifically, but just in terms of local civic engagement, you know, communicating with your neighbors, your local elected officials, organizing together, being involved in local community projects, working across the divides, politically, racially, and otherwise, you know, it is very deeply sort of uh, interwoven into the, the culture and the fabric of Braver Angels' work. Uh, and, you know, really sort of the identity that we have, the self-identity that we have as an organization, as a, as a national community that seeks to be a part of a larger, of a larger movement, you know, towards mutual human dignity in American society or the recognition thereof. Great. Great. Thanks. Um, just kind of staying with this, I, one of the things, so, I mean, I think I'd mentioned to you when I first reached out, like I, I was out of, I was overseas for, you know, about 12 and a half years and I was in like war zones and stuff. But one of the things I noticed when I came back was there was a lot of talk of everyone's like, you know, that's my right. That's my right. That's my right. But what seemed to be left on the wayside was, okay, yeah, you have all those rights, but you also, as a citizen, you have some responsibility or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, or a resident, let's just say, I mean, if you're not a you know, U.S. or Canadian citizen, like you still have a certain responsibility to the society. And I, I you know, I, I don't mean this and that you, you should join the military or, you know, anything like that. But, you know, if you live in your neighborhood and you're walking down the road and you see whatever a tree branch has fallen on the road, like, you know, if you can move it out of the way so someone doesn't get hurt, like just like, do you try to work on things like that? Or have you noticed that, you know, when you're out meeting with people and speaking with them, like there's too much concern about rights and not enough about responsibility. Mm. Yeah. I definitely think that that is um, near to the heart of the larger problem in American political culture. I think that, you know, we want to see, the national sort of state of affairs. I mean, not just national, but we wanna see the state of affairs in American politics be responsive to what we think American society owes us 
which is fair because mm. you know, government has certain obligations to its citizens, certainly. Um, but, you know, it, it sort of gets back to that John F. Kennedy quote, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Um, I, I think what I would want to impress upon people is the fact that a functioning, you know, liberal democracy doesn't operate automatically, you know? Um, it requires us acting in good faith with each other, you know, to ensure that the levers of power, you know, in, in government and elsewhere in our institutional landscape genuinely do strive at least to operate for the common good of American society, knowing that the common good is actually fractured across all sorts of competing interests and conflicting, you know, and conflicting uh, contexts. But that nevertheless, if we try to work together and reason with one another towards outcomes that ultimately, you know, try to approximate the best interests um, of the people generally, um, that's the only way such a system can be sustained. But it requires us in part to look at the need, to look at the imperative of goodwill in American society, acting in a trustworthy fashion so that others may trust you in, in, in kind, uh, acting in a trustworthy fashion so that you can help encourage others to meet that bar and so forth. Um, that has to be seen as a part of civic responsibility itself, which means we need a concept of civic responsibility, right? <laughs> we, need, we need some idea of, of, of the sense that, you know, democracy is something that I can't just passively receive. I have to be a part of co-creating it, not just by petitioning and protesting and telling you what to do with your vote and so on and so forth, but by actively being involved in seeking to collaborate with people in terms of building, you know, solutions and imagining pathways towards progress that bring everybody to the table in a way that allows us to relate with each other and collaborate towards a given end. Um, so, you know, uh, the same same individual I mentioned to you before, Harry Boyd, uh, and he's a professor at Augsburg University. He, he uses this uh, term, he, he speaks of a citizen professionalism, you know, this idea that we each of us sort of have an office uh, in the context of being, being a citizen. Now, you know, I think you can take the word citizen, the small c here, because there are people who are, who are uh, vital parts of American communities who are residents and who are not necessarily citizens or naturalized citizens. But, you know, the, the deeper point is just that to be a constructive you know, member of the community, we really do have to take it upon ourselves to realize that the liberties that we have, the rights that we have, can only survive in the context of our being mutually invested in one another's welfare. And therefore, you know, having a willingness to reason together and to compromise uh, with each other with an aim towards sustaining the best possible outcome for everybody. Um, that you know, that has to be a part of our conception of what good citizenship means, you know? And without that, we just become impatient consumers, you know, waiting for, waiting for a society to give us what we think it should give us, but never really putting anything back in in return. Okay, thanks. No, okay, I'm, because this is, 
this is, I guess, going to be kind of like an attack on myself a little bit. <laughs> okay. Like, <laughs> now, this was before COVID and we all got locked down and everything. I used to go to this little pub near my house and, you know, I, I, I'd go there on Mondays because we played this old man's card game called Cribbage. And one of the people there, uh, the last Monday before we, we were there, before COVID shut everything down here, her and I were just talking and we we're talking about the American election upcoming um, or sorry. What, so when, we, yeah, yeah. So we we're talking about the upcoming American election and we we're just saying, you know, we we're talking about who's who this and yeah, like who's going to be running and this and that. And then the conversation at one point turned to the, the transgender issue. And I'm only bringing this up because like I, like I said, I just want to use this as one example and then I'll, I'll attack myself. Um, now I spoke with her and, you know, a, it was a pub. It was a friendly environment. So that's a, you know, that's one thing. It's like, not like we're there on a, on stage on a debate to be confronting each other. Right. And, and, you know, we, we'd seen mm -hmm. each other a few, you know, several times at that place. Now I said, said to her, okay, look, I've read, and I gave her a list of all the stuff I'd read. Like, you know, I read, you know, like Judith Butler and Gail Rubin and just went down the list and I said, you know, but, and I just asked her to explain to me how Pete Buttigieg was not really a gay man because he didn't embrace his queerness. He was just an, another man, a man who slept with other men. Cause I mean, that was <laughs> stuff that was said, I think it was even said by NBC. And so I just said, can you please explain that to me? And so we had a long conversation mm -hmm. and, you know, we were on complete opposite sides. Like she knew I didn't agree with that stuff. And, you know, she identified as queer. And so we went back and forth and I just said, okay, but can you do it without using jargon? Now, on Twitter, I'm like, you know what? I've got, I, I can't be bothered on Twitter, really. Like, and if I get ticked off at someone, and I mean, I think the good thing is I'm off it a lot more now because because uh, of work. <laughs> so I'm on it much less. But if I get ticked off, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. Like, I'm, I can be quite an asshole on Twitter. But like I said, I have no problem sitting down with someone and just speaking with them. So, I mean, like, like there is that too. Like, do you find like things like social media and, you know, or you can even take a really bad example from the media of like someone like Don Lemon saying, if your family votes for Trump, you know, cut them off, things like that. But like, do you find that's making your job harder or like, have you noticed like things getting tenser since when you started with Brave Angels? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the phenomenon of American polarization, political polarization, not probably not just the United States, of course, uh, is one that is reinforced not so much merely by one politician or the other, or even by the parties in aggregate so much as it is kind of the, you know, the sort of, the sort of circulatory system of polarization that, you know, unfolds in the interconnectedness of the culture of the political parties and the media establishment and various other American institutions that exist sort of, you know, on the receiving end of the cultures that are pumped through the parties and pumped through the medias. And now, you know, sort of metastasizing across the complex landscape of social media, which operates in a way so as to sort of incentivize itself, the balkanizing of the American, of the American, uh, of the American electorate, the sort of dividing of our sense-making capacities, 
into sort of tribal echo, echo chambers, um, wherein we circulate the same opinions back and forth. And if anybody shows up with a differing point of view, unartfully, uh, inartfully expressed in a mere 126 characters or whatever it is, you know, we suddenly have social license to pounce. And, you know, we see that every statement on social media is effectively a public statement. And so this fight or flight response sets into play to where we're not just trying to win an argument between two individuals privately speaking uh, or quietly speaking at a pub. Uh, we are having to defend <laughs> our image and the honor of our entire, you know, uh, partisan tribe, if you will, uh, potentially in front of the world, in front of onlookers who we don't even know, you know. Uh, everything in what I've just laid out conspires to making it yeah, difficult to impossible for us to be able to relate to each other in a functional sort of way. So, you know, um, yes, it is the media, it is social media, it is all, all of these things. Has it gotten worse since we started? I think that, yes, it has uh, and so many. Now, you know, the, this is a problem, the more aware we are of it as an issue and of, and of the need for us to be deliberate in seeking to construct a response to it, right? And so, you know, even as the problem has worsened uh, in our own, you know, small corners of America, if you will, um, our momentum is growing as well, the momentum of Brave Angels and, and even other sort of kindred spirit organizations and so forth, uh, who in one way or the other are seeking to rebuild these bonds, heal these wounds and shift the culture of conversation that at present is so toxic and, and unmanageable in, in American life. So it is to be expected that it would get worse before it got better. But I do think that the overall tides are likely to turn because the divisions of American society, polarization, this hyperpolarization, uh, affective polarization, the polarization based not on differences of opinions on issues, but on contempt for one another as persons, is the problem that ensures that all other problems will never be solved, right? Because if you can't bring the sides together to work on an issue like climate change, uh, much less immigration or, you know, even immigration or gun or gun control or, or whatever the case may be. There's so many problems that simply cannot be solved unless the body politic is mobilized en masse to be able to do it. I mean, COVID-19 is a perfect example, you know, without the buy-in of something much closer, you know, to this sort of, you know, to, to, the, to the greater sum of, of the body politic, without having the mainstream buy-in of both sides of the aisle on a given response to that, to that problem. The things that we try to do fail to be nearly as effective as we need them to be because you don't have that trust and confidence across the aisle. And so authorities whose advice and recommendations are trusted by Democrats are not trusted by Republicans and politicians who, you know, Republican governors in certain states who want to take a certain approach to responding to the crisis in their own states are not trusted by, you know, major parts of their own, their own citizenry. And so we just can't get it on the same page as a result of that. And that's directly tied uh, to these deeper seated divisions uh, in the American uh, body politic. And so, you know, um, the problem is worsening, but our understanding of that dynamic is crystallizing as well. 
And so we are definitely seeing more and more well-established interests and a greater number of the American people beginning to come into our work and similar projects uh, in a way that almost is sort of like the antibodies of, you know, the, of, of, of the Republic kind of beginning to develop their own immune response to the, uh, to the virus of polarization, to, to, to stretch an analogy a little bit. Um, so it's natural that it should be this way, but I'm confident that these tides will turn. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, like, this is one thing I've kind of noticed. And I mean, especially like if I look back, it's, it's kind of, we've gone from one overcorrection to another and I'm just afraid of, okay. Like, I don't want to discount, like I, we can go back to like the eighties with like, you know, AM radio and like, you know, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. And then you had the political correctness, which was a throwback to that. That I mean, like it's gone back and forth and it just, to me, it seems like the pendulum keeps swinging from one extreme to the other and it doesn't stop in the center long enough to provide like a little respite of sanity. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's been my biggest fear since like one of my biggest fears since I came back. Cause I, I got into all of this conversation, everything just because I criticized Islam when I got back from overseas and I got called a white supremacist and I was like, where the hell is that coming from? You know, like, Hey, I'm not white. And you know, like mm-hmm. where, where does that come from? And that, that's how I got involved in all of this stuff. Like I said, like if, if, if we don't stop what's going on and I, you know, I, I you know, we're going to have an over, over correction. I, I thought maybe Trump was that overcorrection. I thought, okay, Charlottesville is that overcorrection, but it just seems to be getting worse mm-hmm. and worse. And like, no one, like one of the best ways I've heard it explained was, uh, it was James Lindsay on Joe Rogan and he explained it like a centrifuge. So like, you know, you take, you put something in a centrifuge, it spins and it pushes everything to the sides and it breaks apart the center. And that's kind of like what's, what I see happening when I say the overcorrection, it's mm-hmm. the Democrats will yeah. go further left. And instead of the Republicans coming into the center, they'll go further right or vice versa. Right. So everyone's going further and mm-hmm. further away. So like, I, I, like I said, that's one of my biggest fears. It's like that overcorrection that's going to come or that snapback. Now, when you say you, you see it, you, 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 you're hopeful about it. Like I, maybe I'm just too pessimistic, but I just, I'm, I'm very, very scared of that overcorrection. Well, yeah. I mean, the pendulum does swing and it swings fairly wildly. You know, there's always more than one thing going on in, in American society. I mean, you know, you could ask the question, why can't we just rest at some stable, stable mm-hmm. center? Um, you know, Francis Fukuyama, who actually was on the board of, of Men Better Angels uh, uh, for a time, uh, wrote a book called The End of History, in which he sort of argues that, you know, society would kind of progress to the state where liberal democracy would represent kind of the the, the, the pinnacle innovation of, of human governance and that that would sort of, you know, be the foundation upon which the rest of the rest of political history would just sort of build that coming up to, you know, a liberal kind of, you know, uh, place of completion, we would more or less be able to sustain progress from there on out from that premise. And uh, he wrote that after the fall of the Cold War, thinking that, you know, the conversation over how we ought to sort of properly ground society maybe was effectively over. I, I should probably, you know, uh, say that I've, I've heard 
Fukuyama's work talked about and you know referenced in a thousand places, but I haven't actually read the book myself, so I hope I'm doing his thesis justice. But you know what was quickly sort of discovered is that um, you know there was all sorts of discontent with liberalism, even in you know even coming out of the '90s when we had tremendous prosperity um, shared across much of society, you know, you fast forward a couple of decades and the conversation is over, you know, white supremacy, the oppression, the brutal oppression or perceived or real as of, of people of color. And suddenly it starts to resemble the 1960s, which was a time of dramatic shifting, but that itself came after the 1950s, which was a period of tremendous American, you know, overcoming. You had, you know, you have uh, a, a highly sort of unified, you know, uh, seemingly unified uh, Congress and body politic. I mean, yes, you had McCarthyism. You had even then things that drove the American people uh, apart to some degree. But American society was prosperous. You had Republicans and Democrats uh, arm in arm on the widest uh, range of, of issues. Um, one might have thought that uh, the 60s would have been similarly unified, but no, not so, you know. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, you've always got, you always have realities lying beneath the surface, you know. The reality of the fact that, you know, African Americans, even 40 and 50 years after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, you know, occupying, you know, the bottom of just about every significant social statistical ladder for reasons that may have to do with things beyond just sort of individual initiative and relating to the operations of major structures of American life, that at least is the feeling and the experience of so many people. And suddenly people are reacting to that. You have this reality that conservatives and rural folks and religious folks and poor white people have felt condescended to by liberal mainstream America, even since the days of Walter Cronkite. You know, we kind of forget that folks at, you know, the Barry Goldwater Convention of 1964, you know, those folks, you know, reviled the mainstream media, even back during the golden era of American journalism. We don't talk about that too much, but the reason Rush Limbaugh was so popular when he came on the air was that he was sort of the first voice on the airwaves who seemed to be speaking for all these people who felt like ABC and NBC never represented them, was never, you know, showing the face of America that, that really, you know, uh, uh, was indicative of reality as, as they saw it. You know, you have various groups who are, who are clamoring to be heard, clamoring to be represented and feel underserved, underacknowledged, and, then you've got some folks who, you know, are pretty comfortable with the status quo, with the establishment, and you sort of want to hold on to that comfortable paradigm, but things have to shift. They have to change. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing that the pendulum shifts back and forth. The question is, can it, can it happen in a way to where democracy is ultimately able to stabilize and cohere? Can we hear the voices of the underrepresented across the spectrum, whether, you know, whether from from you know, Harlem to Detroit to you know, Kentucky to rural Ohio, right? From black to white, urban to rural, et cetera, et cetera. Can we take everybody's grievances and claims you know, into the conversation, um, engage the substance of them 
and respond with a functioning sort of democratic, you know, culture that is able to shift, that is able to reform, that is able to, you know, change law and custom and convention without the foundations itself cracking and crumbling. And I think that that's really what you're responding to now, obeyed not so much the fact that the pendulum was, was swinging back and forth, but that in swinging back and forth the way that it is, it threatens to fly off of you know the thing altogether and bring the whole structure down, right? Because that can happen. That definitely can happen. And so the center is important, not because it represents the status quo that we want to be complacent with, but because it represents sort of a stabilizing kind of place wherein we can manage the tensions of the poles in a way that allows us to be responsive to the legitimate grievances of people on the different edges, you know, of the ideological and cultural conversations. And so, you know, in Brave Rangers, we're not a centrist organization per se, but we are seeking to establish something of a temperamental center, if you will, where folks from the left and the right are able to conduct business in such a way as to where we can be responsive to the, to the pressures that are coming in from the different ends of, of the spectrum while still maintaining, you know, the, the core structures of American democracy, you know, making sure that the American project survives to the next generation. Um, that's the work, but we need to accept the fact that the pendulum is going to swing. That's just a part of the flow of history. And it's always yeah, going to be that way. No, like, I, like, look, I, I know it's going to go back and forth because I mean, if you're just stuck in the center anyways, then you're it's stagnation and you, you need mm -hmm. that conflict to advance and to progress. But like, and I wasn't trying to you know, imply that you guys were a centrist organization. It was most more that we need a I place to make sure that I didn't seem to imply that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, we just sit like, we need a place where like to have those conversations and to have people come to realize, okay, you know what we do want, our kids to be able to like, you know, go to the park and play and, you know, have, you know, like we want a good society for everyone. Like it's just our idea might have, but to have that conversation of where we all agree that, okay, we want a common goal of making a better society, but like, how do we go about it? But it's like, if it goes back and forth this quickly and it just seems to me like it's just, you know, it's, it's like when you go down the swings, right. You start off slowly, but then it just gets bigger and bigger arch arcs. Right. So it's like, like we need to be in that center for a little bit. I think we need to be able to be in that little rut for a little while. So we can actually <laughs> back up. Cause one of the things you'd mentioned earlier, and it's one of the things I complain a lot about, like the, the current <clears throat> said, you know, it's, that's the current, you know, like, like the whole, whatever woke move or whatever, the social justice thing. My issue, my biggest issue with that is, it takes away like something you just mentioned earlier. It takes away from the main issue. Like, you know, you can go back to something like the, you know, when, when Trump was in power, the, the kids in cages and they're the whole conversation shifted on whether or not they should be called concentration camps. I'm like, well, that's not really the important issue. The important issue is there's kids in cages, right? <laughs> you know, we, or if you want to talk about now, like with, with the schools, like, Oh, well, that's not CRT. It's I'm like, okay, do we really care what we call it? when you're showing what they're doing, or do we really care what you call that when only six, when 65% of kids can't, you know, graduate high school, not being able to read, like mm -hmm. you're not focusing on the right issue. And I think that's where 
I want that little bit of a quiet space where you can have both sides come in and have a conversation. And, and I should correct myself there. I don't think it's both sides. I think there's multiple sides. Like it's not just left and right. I think there's like so many different variations of what people call left and right, that it's not just a two-sided issue. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's definitely true. Um, you know, we sort of start with this broad left-right binary, but reality is much more complicated than that. And the American people are more complicated than that. I mean, you know, it's, it's not hard for me to, it's not hard for me to, to actually, it, it, I shouldn't say it's rare, but it would almost be strange to meet somebody um, who had zero kind of, you know, sympathies with anything that the mainstream tends to believe, you know, on the, on the opposite side of the aisle. Um, we live too closely with each other. Our experiences are too overlapping for that to be completely true. Um, but um, I do think that a hallmark of our current culture is exactly what you've identified, this tendency to conflate signal with substance, if you will. Um, the desire to enforce a certain way of talking about things or presenting on issues with an actual engagement with the substance of a given problem. And I think that part of what that points to is the fact that there is tremendous social validation to be gained in seeming to champion a certain issue or certain cause, but that that's different than doing the hard work of actually solving a problem. You know, and I was having a conversation along these lines with an activist um, uh, from from Pittsburgh, uh, a guy who uh, amazing person who had been shot by law enforcement, shot by police in a very unjustified fashion. You know, somebody who had lost the use of his legs, but who had gone on to build friendships and relationships with the chief of police, law enforcement officials. He effectively advocated for reform in his community, uh, he was re rebuilding relationships with the local community and, and, and the police, uh, while still pointing out injustices, while still drawing attention to things that needed to be changed, being a voice for accountability. And he, he and I were talking about the fact that, you know, so often you'll have activists who come into a certain community and you know, tend to want to turn over tables and make speeches and shout down people in community meetings. We're actually drowning out the voices of people who frequently will actually live in these communities or the people who are actually directly impacted by certain problems uh, and who are there ostensibly to be able to help people, but who the effect of their kind of you know, involvement it's kind of to distract from the actual problems that are on the ground and to even make it worse because they can make it harder for people to communicate with each other and to trust each other, right? Um, there are versions of that that you can find across American life and across American politics. I mean, how much of being a member of Congress these days is just posturing for Fox News or MSNBC or what have you, or catering to the, to the preferences of a certain base constituency without ever, you know, working in conscientious fashion with folks on the other side of the aisle to get something done for the American people. Um, it is style over substance all day long, it seems. And part of what we need to do to get back to your focus on local engagement um, and to get back to our focus on sort of, you know, 
my friend Harry Boyd terms, again, citizen professionalism, uh, is to sort of, you know, get back in touch with the, you know, with this deeper reality of, 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 of human virtues being the pathway towards human progress. Are we working hard? Are we listening to each other? Uh, are we honest? Uh, are we also compassionate? Are we disciplined? You know, are we striving towards objectivity even though none of us can fully escape our biases? Are we reasoning together? Are we being patient with each other and with the intractability of problems that don't necessarily lend themselves to easy solutions? Or are we, are we showing off and showing out so that we can get some sort of recognition and so we can feel some gratification, like we're on the side of the angels, when really we're just making things more hellish for everybody, you know? These are the sorts of questions that, you know, we sort of have to sort of have to ask ourselves. And if we do, you know, and if we can reflect on the ways in which, you know, our civic character can be deepened collectively and individually, you know, that'll be a sign of the fact that we're getting, you know, in touch again uh, with the better angels, perhaps the braver angels of our nature to keep it on brand. <laughs> well, that was so great. Then, uh, well, well, thanks a lot. Look, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, but um, if you have any last words or if you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you and I'll put the links to everything in the description. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, look, I encourage people to look into the work of braver angels, become a member. If this mission uh, of, of, as we say, building a house united is something that you might believe in as well, give us a chance. You can find us at braverangels.org. We'd love to have you involved. And you can follow me uh, on Twitter, John R. Wood Jr., uh, Jr. Um, and you can find Braver Angels on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram as well, at Braver Angels. So, uh, yeah, brother, that's all I got for you. All right. Well, thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And you know, thank you again for coming on. Yeah, man. Yeah, pleasure is mine. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll be back.